Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles. The Battle of Fornova, part two of five. At the heart of the city of Florence in Tuscany stands the beautiful Basilica de San Lorenzo, or Basilica of St. Lawrence. Claimed as the oldest of all Florentine churches, the Basilica was consecrated in the year 393, and for the next 300 years it was the city's cathedral, before the seat of the bishop was moved elsewhere. Many centuries later, during the Italian Renaissance, the Basilica received a new lease of life, enriched by works of some of the most famous artists of the period, including Michelangelo and Donatello, as well as the famous architect Filippo Brunelleschi. Such great figures came to Florence thanks to the patronage of the famous Medici, arguably the most remarkable of all Italian Renaissance families. The Medici rose from humble beginnings in the 13th century to become the predominant family of Tuscany until the 18th century, but they are probably most remembered for two individuals in particular, Cosimo, who lived from 1389 to 1464, and his grandson, Lorenzo il Magnifico, the Magnificent, 1449 to 1492, who became almost the personal embodiment of the humanist spirit of the Italian Renaissance. Not only did they have a good eye for recognising artistic genius, which they generously funded, they are also remembered as exemplary statesmen, both in international diplomacy and in internal affairs of their city, where they led one of the most genuinely republican and democratic systems of government seen before modern times. In the early Middle Ages, power in Florence was held, as virtually everywhere in Europe, by the noble classes. But during the 13th century, leaders of the seven main guilds, which represented the city's main industries such as wool production, banking and merchant trading, gradually gained influence in the day-to-day -day running of the city's administration. Over time, the guild leaders took more and more responsibility outside their traditional mercantile functions. For example, they started to help administer the accounts of the city militia. The guild leaders also abolished serfdom in the Florentine countryside, which prevented the nobles from being able to call on their tenant farmers to fight for them whenever demanded. Many of the freed serfs migrated into the city and became a cheap pool of labour and this helped develop industry, especially the production of fine woolen cloth. By the 1290s, the guilds had taken over the economic and military levers of power in the city, before the nobles, 
uninterested as they were in day-to-day administration, had really realised what was going on. When in 1293 the nobility attempted to seize back control, they were defeated, ejected from power, and in Florence was established a new republican constitution, called the Ordinances of Justice. Ownership of property and paying of taxes replaced bloodlines as the new ways of admission into political power, and formal institutions and practices of government were set up to prevent any one individual taking over control of the city. As a consequence, power became broadly distributed throughout political classes. Christopher Hibbert, in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Medici, describes the process of elections in Florence. Quote, The names of all members of the guilds aged 30 or over who were eligible for election to office were placed in eight leather bags. Every two months these bags were taken, and in a short ceremony names were drawn out at random. Men known to be in debt were ineligible for office, So were those who had served a recent term, or who were related to men whose names had already been drawn. The citizens eventually selected were known for the next two months as the Priori, and the government which they constituted as the Signoria. There were never more than nine men in the Signoria, six of them representing the six major guilds, two of them the minor guilds. The ninth became the so-called Gonfaloniere, temporary standard-bearer of the Republic, and custodian of the city's banner, a red lily on a white field. Immediately upon their election, all the priori were required to move into the Palazzo de la Signoria. End quote. Today, by the way, the Palazzo de la Signoria is known as the Palazzo Vecchio, a famous landmark in Florence. The Florentines were extremely proud of this system and its inclusiveness. In comparison with the other four great powers of Italy, the government of the Republic of Venice was restricted to a few leading families. Milan was controlled by a despotic duke, the Papal States was a collection of petty tyrannies, and the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily had a feudal system. In reality, though, the Florentine government was neither stable nor as democratic as it seems at first sight. Not only were the ordinary workers excluded, but the process of elections were controlled by the leading guilds and by the richest merchant families. Nevertheless, it was a political system far more democratic and modern in its outlook than virtually anywhere elsewhere at the time. The Medici were only one of many families who arrived from the countryside in the early 13th century and settled in the neighbourhood of San Lorenzo near the previously mentioned Basilica. Migrants like them increased the size of Florence about fivefold between the mid-12th and mid-13th centuries, making the city larger than Rome or London, though still smaller than the great medieval centres of Paris, Naples and Milan. The economy of Florence was then booming, especially the merchant and banking industries. Woolen cloth of the highest quality was produced and sold to the wealthiest of Europe, and silk and spices were imported from the east. The Florentine banks helped to facilitate this burgeoning international trade, and in the process, bankers accumulated great wealth, which they loaned out all around Western Europe. It was during this period, writes Paul Strathern in his book, The Medici, Godfathers of the Renaissance, that the foundations of modern capitalism were laid, in which new business practices were established, and innovations in banking evolved, such as double-entry bookkeeping. Despite these advances, Florentine bankers were prone to political instability. 
Within the city, the leading figures were either Ghibellines, who drew their support from the noble families, or Guelphs, who were supported by wealthy merchants, by the so-called popolo minuto, that is, the general public or working class. The Florentines also suffered from external problems and were prone to the whims of the continent's leaders. In 1340, for example, Europe suffered an economic depression, and King Edward III of England, having just embarked on the Hundred Years' War, reneged on his Italian debts, triggering the bankruptcy of the three leading banking families in Florence. The economic depression of the 1340s was followed by the catastrophe of the Black Death, which is thought to have wiped out at least one-third of Europe's population. Italian ports and cities were particularly badly affected, and many Florentines fled to the countryside to try and escape the plague. In spite of these problems, the rulers of Florence had expanded their power over most of the region of Tuscany by the mid-14th century, and become one of the five great powers of the Italian peninsula. The city also enjoyed a golden literary age in this period. At the very height of the first wave of the plague, the author Giovanni Boccaccio wrote a collection of short stories called the Decameron, about a group of young men and women sheltering in a secluded villa outside Florence. Written in the vernacular of the Florentine language, the Decameron is considered a masterpiece of classical early Italian prose. Boccaccio was undoubtedly influenced by the first great masterpiece of Italian literature, the Divine Comedy. Written by the poet Dante Alighieri between about 1308 and 1320, the Divine Comedy is not only a great work of literature, but is an important historical document, revealing much about the leading Italian figures of Dante's time. Another important literary figure of the age is Francesco Petrarch, lived 1304 to 1374, a highly influential poet and scholar credited by many as Turin, the Italian Renaissance. Also arguably, the two finest Italian artists of the 14th century came from Florence. Giotto and Pisano both broke with traditions of the Middle Ages and painted figures with a more modern and lifelike manner, with recognisable expressions of emotion. Although their reputations are rightly deserved, David Gilmore, in his book The Pursuit of Italy, argues that art historians have traditionally been overly influenced by the biographies of the 16th century art historian Giorgio Vasari, who emphasised the greatness of Florentines at the expense of other great contemporary artists working elsewhere in Tuscany, such as in Siena. In the first years of the 1400s, the Medici were but one of several extended families who competed for political power and influence in Florence. As Florence began to recover from the plague, the Medici took advantage of the vacuum left by the bankruptcy of the former leading banking families and established for themselves their own small enterprises. As bankers, they became members of one of the seven main guilds of the city, and in the last years of the 13th century, the names of individual members of the Medici family began to appear in the lists of council members in the city's administration. They quietly cultivated their popularity among the popolo minuto, to compensate for their lack of social pedigree. They distributed gifts to the common people and decided to live modestly, using their wealth not on ostentatious vanities, but instead by discreetly building up a network of supporters, that might one day be turned to political use. The family's first big break was in 1410, when a new pope, John XXIII, decided to allow the Medici Bank to handle the papal finances. 
The papacy required capable bankers because of the complexity of its financial dealings, because most of its revenues were earned abroad. They came in the form of remittances from local church organisations around Christendom, as well as the selling of holy relics and of indulgences which offered the purchaser the Pope's pardon for their sins. Unfortunately, the papacy was still in schism, with not just two, but now three claimants in total. In 1414, at the Council of Constance, Pope John XXIII, along with both his rivals, were declared deposed, and at first it seemed the Medici had run out of luck. The ex-pope, henceforth known as the anti-pope, or by his original name of Baldassare Cossa, was nevertheless offered hospitality in Florence by the head of the Medici, Giovanni de Bici. This decision turned out to be very shrewd, writes Paul Stratham. The family's prestige rose throughout Europe by welcoming into their house a man who had been the spiritual leader of all Christendom. Their decision to stand by Baldassare enhanced their reputation for loyalty and trustworthiness, and was intended to help gain favour of the new Pope. Giovanni helped reconcile Baldassare with the new Pope, Martin V, who with Rome in one of its frequent periods of unrest happened to be living in Florence at the time. In the end, Pope Martin V decided to choose another family for his finances, but by acting as they did, the Medici put themselves in a good position to be considered as papal bankers in the future. The next important event for Florence was in 1422, when Filippo Maria Visconti, the Duke of Milan, attacked his neighbour, the port city of Genoa. Although the Milanese signed a peace treaty with Florence, they occupied Forli, a small town in Romagna that was nominally under the protection of Florence. The leading noble families of Florence, in response, declared war on Milan. The ordinary citizens, fed up of paying taxes for such military adventures, opposed the war. Giovanni de Bici, the head of the Medici family, advised against war, but was outvoted by the still more powerful families, had little choice but to reluctantly assist in military operations. Just as Giovanni feared, the war against the more military powerful Milan went badly, and dragged on for years. As most others of the time in Italy, this war was fought not by political leaders themselves but by hired mercenaries who were ill-inclined to risk their lives fighting and often keen to prolong conflict for as long as their paymasters could afford it. After three years of war, Venice joined on the side of Florence, compelling the Visconti of Milan to retreat and sign a humiliating peace agreement in 1427. The rulers of Florence had no choice but to raise taxes to help cover the immense cost of war, which was deeply resented by its citizens. Not long after, in February 1429, Giovanni de Bici passed away, handing over leadership of his family to his son, Cosimo de' Medici, who would go on to become one of the most famous leaders of Renaissance Italy. In 1430, the rulers of Florence, seeking a chance to redeem themselves, launched an invasion against the independent city of Lucca, some 40 miles to the west of Florence. Again, the Medici argued against the offensive, but again they were outvoted and were compelled to fall into line. The war against Lucca was another failure for Florence, as it provoked the Duke of Milan to send his chief mercenary commander, or condottiere, Francesco Sforza. Francesco Sforza's hired troops quickly lifted the Florentine siege of Lucca. Perhaps it would have ended there. Instead, the Florentines decided their best course of action was to bribe Sforza, effectively outbidding the Milanese. Sforza's army accepted its pay and left Lucca alone. Unfortunately for the Florentines, they were still unable to break through the city walls of Lucca. 
war dragged on for another three years, bringing in the city, states of Venice and Genoa, until finally, in April 1433, a peace was agreed, under which was restored the status quo that prevailed before the outbreak of war. The Florentine government, having spent a fortune and achieved nothing, was in a state of disarray. His most powerful leader, Ronaldo of the Albizzi family, needed to find a scapegoat and decided upon Cosimo de' Medici. On the 7th of September, 1433, Cosimo was arrested and charged with causing the failure to take Luca. All Cosimo could do was to persuade the Florentine colleagues to commute a sentence of execution and instead accept exile. Fortunately for the Medici, Cosimo had taken precautions against this possibility. To prevent the seizure of his assets, he had already transferred his gold elsewhere. His enemies in Florence did not dare raid the monasteries where Cosimo had placed his assets, for fear of incurring the wrath of the church. Cosimo found temporary residence in Venice, while back in Florence the lord of the Albizzi family became even more authoritarian and unpopular. By the late summer of 1434, feelings against the government had run so high as a majority of known Medici supporters were elected to the Signoria. Cosimo was invited to return, and his opponents, including the entire Albizzi family, were now banished from Florence. In a remarkable turn of fortune, Cosimo was welcomed back as a saviour. A more impetuous man would have, at this point, loudly declared himself the city's new ruler. But Cosimo followed the advice of his father to respect the Florentine traditions of republicanism, and to avoid being too conspicuous. By all accounts, Cosimo genuinely believed in the principle of republican government as a better alternative to autocracy, and made no significant changes to laws that governed the state. He chose not to give himself any official titles, yet everyone knew Cosimo was now the effective leader of the city in all but name, pulling the strings of power behind the scenes. A remarkable man, Cosimo stayed modest despite his enormous wealth. Now, at the height of his power, he was about to earn himself an important place in the history of Europe. As writes Paul Strathen, quote, From now on he would become more than an extremely skilful banker, more than a canny and manipulative ruler, more even than a generous and discerning patron. Cosimo emerged as the richest man of his age, the founder of a dynasty, the man who encouraged the first flowering of the Renaissance, end quote. As a young man, Cosimo de' Medici had been educated in the current humanist thinking, which sparked a lifelong interest in the Greek classics and Renaissance art. Now feeling secure in his position of power in Florence, Cosimo had built a brand new palace for his family, the Palazzo Medici. He decided against the first design by Brunelleschi as overly ostentatious, and employed instead a young architect named Michelozzo, whose plans featured a more austere façade. For the inner courtyard, he commissioned the already famous sculptor Donatello to produce a bronze statue of the biblical David. This famous Renaissance masterpiece is believed to be the first life-size freestanding bronze statue to be created since the classical era, an ancient technique remastered as never before. Cosimo also provided funds to support the completion of the city cathedral Santa Maria del Fiore today a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Although its construction had begun many decades prior, no one had yet worked out how to build a dome large enough to cover the enormous structure. The problem was solved by the great architect Filippo Brunelleschi, using a revolutionary new design. 
until the development of new structural materials in the modern era, the dome was the largest in the world, and it remains the largest brick dome ever constructed. Cosimo is also remembered for hosting an important ecumenical council in Florence in 1439. As described in an earlier podcast on the fall of Constantinople, the Byzantine emperor John VIII Periolegos, desperate for military assistance from Western Europe, travelled to Italy in this year to discuss conditions for a union of the Western and Eastern churches. A large influx of Greek manuscripts at this time added to Cosimo's great library, which comprised many thousands of ancient Greek, Latin and Hebrew texts. Cosimo was fortunate to take the reins of power at a time when the economy of Florence was again booming. The plague had largely passed by, and the European wool trade began to flourish again. Eager to avoid any further disastrous military adventures, Cosimo forged an alliance with the most powerful mercenary commander, or condottiere of the time, in Italy, Francesco Sforza, the same man who had been earlier brought off to lift his siege of Lucca. The son of a farmer, and now in his mid-thirties, Sforza was a man of imposing physical presence, and had time and again shown great astuteness on the battlefield. He had strong links with Milan, but owned his own independent army, and had created his own private kingdom in Romagna. By working together with Francesco Sforza, and by maintaining Florence's traditional alliance with Venice, Cosimo hoped to stabilise northern Italy. Milan, however, continued to be a threat under the rule of the eccentric Duke Filippo Maria. Having succeeded to the dukedom and the assassination of his elder brother, Filippo Maria was paranoid about plots to kill him and slept in heavily armed bedchambers. Despite his character flaws and great ugliness, the Duke was a skilful politician who had dreams of making Milan the supreme power in northern Italy. Encouraged by Rinaldo degli Albizzi, who had sworn revenge on Cosimo for his exile, the Milanese invaded Florentine territory in 1437, and again in 1438, both times repulsed with difficulty. Cosimo paid for the services of Francesco Sforza, who forced the Milanese to retreat from Florentine territory. But the battle-hardened condottiere had his own agenda. He did not want to become unpopular in Milan by pressing home an attack on the city, since he had hopes of marrying the Duke's daughter, Bianca. Although illegitimate, she was the Duke's only child and so heir to the duchy. Not soon after, in 1447, Filippo Maria died without having nominated a successor. Both King Alfonso I, the magnanimous of Naples, and the French Duke of Orleans staked a claim to the duchy, and the Venetians also sought an opportunity to grab Milanese territory. For these years, the citizens of Milan attempted to run a government in a brief experiment known as the Ambrosian Republic but they were not militarily strong enough to defend themselves against their ambitious neighbours. In 1450, Francesco Sforza moved his army into the city and took control. He married Bianca Visconti, declared himself Duke of Milan, and established a new Sforza dynasty. The main beneficiary, except for Francesco Sforza himself, was Cosimo de' Medici, whose friendship and loyalty to the new duke was now awarded with an opening up of a Medici bank branch in Milan. These changes in the Italian political scene soon began to have implications further afield. Venice appealed to the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III to dismantle the Florentine Milanese alliance, forcing both Cosimo and Sforza to feel they had no choice but to ally themselves with the other great power of Western Europe of the time, France. 
Soon after, Cosimo was presented with an opportunity to show the typical Medici flair for diplomacy, when the German emperor happened to be passing through Tuscany. At great expense, he ordered that Frederick and his entourage be housed and entertained, earning himself the goodwill of the emperor. Cosimo's diplomatic skills helped contribute to an important Italian peace agreement in 1454. All the five great powers in Italy, Milan, Florence, Venice, Naples and the Papal States, had become more concerned about the interference of more powerful outsiders. Firstly, the kings of France were taking an increasing interest in exploiting Italian internal rivalries. Secondly, the fall of the capital city of Byzantium, Constantinople, to the Ottomans in May 1453 shocked Christendom and brought home the threat the Turks posed to the commercial and territorial interests of the Italian states, especially Venice, Genoa and Naples. From late 1453 to the spring of 1454, the papacy worked hard to settle disagreements between Venice and Milan, leading to the signing on the 9th of April 1454 of an important treaty called the Peace of Lodi. Its terms included some territorial adjustments as well as agreements to encourage trade. Its major significance, though, was in the securing of the Sforza dynasty and tying Milan into a network of alliances. The Peace of Lodi was extended in August 1454 with the support of Florence into what became known as the Italian League. The Papal States officially joined soon after and finally Naples in January 1455. The principal goal was to keep France out of the peninsula, preventing her rulers exploiting conflicts between the Italian states. The territorial status quo between the five powers was to be recognised and each member of the League was obliged to support each other in the event of attack. Lesser states, such as the Republic of Genoa, the House of Savoy, the Gonzaga and the Este, were excluded, leading to later conflict, but on the whole, the Peace of Lodi and the Italian League achieved relative peace in Italy for the next five decades, as each of the five main powers recognised each other's spheres of influence. Peace was shattered half a century later in 1494 by a French invasion, but up until then, the Medici and other Italian leaders were freed from wasting their money on military adventures and instead were able to engage in a level of patronage which brought the Italian Renaissance to its greatest heights. The peace treaty ensured that the Medici would still, until today, be famous for their patronage of great works of art and for good republican government. I hope you can join me next week when I talk about Lorenzo the Magnificent, the ruler of Florence. Until then, have a great week and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.